0: judge said 14 years I mean 14 years flashed in and out in front of my eyes and no I couldn't be without my husband and children for 14 years an innocent person like being locked up for 14 years and apparently I just screamed and screamed at the jury you're wrong you're wrong and apparently I said you bees which a word I never used but anybody in that state God knows what you would have said and the next, I just passed out. And um, I know, like, the next 30, Mr. Patty 14 years. Giuseppe Conlon, Lord rest his soul, 12 years. Paladin, 12 years. Sean Smith, 12 years. And when I heard him say five and four years, like, for Patrick, I just screamed, you know, I just turned around and grabbed him and held him. No, not my sons. No, you know, please, not my sons. Um, and I just passed out, and I was carried down the stairs into the cells. You know, Patty then told me afterwards over the years that they could hear still hear my screaming, me screaming for my children and him when they were taking me out the doors into the van. I, I, I could hear myself screaming. You know, I wanted the wrong, you know, let me go, let me go, I want my kids, you know. And um, I was handcuffed, handcuffed like an animal. That day, I started scrubbing out the kitchen and the way you do, like, tidying around and that. And about... Well, it must have been getting near to four o'clock because um, when I think it was John or Patrick when they come back in went and picked Anne-Marie up from school for me because it was only a few yards down from the house. And in the meantime, anyway, I'm scrubbing out this, the kitchen and the front door opens and uh, it's Paddy and Giuseppe Cullin. Um Giuseppe had come over because his son Jared had been arrested, which we knew nothing about. And when they came in and they came down to the kitchen and I just looked up and I said, Giuseppe, you know, what are you doing here? Like, Because I knew he was a sick man. And he said about Jared and I blessed myself and I said, oh, my God, no, don't let him be involved in anything like that. Because here's me praying that these bombers would be caught, you know. Because I could... I seen the suffering our people in Ireland were going through, in Belfast, through these bombings and that. And there's no way we wanted to see it in England, you know. I mean, we didn't want our children to go through it, what the the poor children in Belfast were going through. And um, I was... I mean, I've said this from day one. I was praying that them bombers would be caught, you know, and this to be stopped. And he says... He's not involved. And I says, well, you know your son as I know mine. So my brother, Sean, had been over in London and he had been staying with me. He came over in the September and he was going back home to Christmas, you know, because there was no work at home and he was working here. And again, he was... Bound bits and pieces to take home to his wife and children and saving up some money and that to go home for the for the Christmas. And, um, Paddy, you know, well, when Sean came in, I said to Sean, Giuseppe Conley's arrived. He said, and he was surprised because we all know Giuseppe's an ill, sick man. I said, Sean, you're not going to believe this. I says, Jerry Conley's been picked up. In connection with the Guilford Bowmans? He says, No, you know. He says, What? I says, Well, Giuseppe he says he's not involved. And Arshon just turned round and he says to me, Annie, he says, Be prepared, they'll be here tonight. And I says, Well, I don't care who. I says, He said, The police. He said, they'll come now and search your place and ask you questions. They do that back home. You see, that's a routine thing to do back home, apparently. If somebody in the family's arrested and no other family going, you know. And that was all our Sean meant, you know. And I says to him, but we've got nothing to, you know, anybody can come into my house, Sean. I've got nothing to hide or fear. Oh, I know that, love, he said. But he said, I'm just putting you, you know, don't get panicked, you know, like, don't be frightened, thinking, what are they doing with me? I don't know nothing about Jerry Connelly, which I didn't. I was in the kitchen, and the, the door closed, and the kids were in the sitting, back-sitting room, doing what they were doing. And um, Anne-Marie opened the door, when the door knocked, and Anne-Marie opened the door... And when she opened the door, they just knocked the door flying back. And the child and these Alsatian dogs. So they come charging down towards the kitchen, you know. And all I could see was faces. I thought it was the men back, but from the pub. And I was ready to say to them, what has the pub got no beer? Because I'd never seen them go out and come back this quick to a pub, you know. And I says, who are you? I mean, it could have been it could have been the <coughs> ARA or anybody. You know what I mean? I didn't know who they were. I says, who are you? But when I seen the uniformed police on my stairs, there were one on the stairs with the station dog and there was another one in the hallway. Anne-Marie was in hysterics. And then I says, are you here because of Gerard Cullinan? Remembering what Sean said. I didn't know, like that they'd cornered off the street and they were shouting through the mics to people to stay in a bomb scare you know like there could be bombs here in this house I didn't find all this out the letter and you know kids gather and all so we panty, God bless him and his mates come running out of the club excitement, all these police in the street, what's going on you know The Paddy got up to his own house and realised it was in the house. And when he came to the door, they pulled him in. He says, I live here. So they nodded him
1: in. It was just a normal day. Just wanted to get home and get to the club at night, the youth club. Meet up with some friends, table tennis and uh, kicking a ball about and listening to records. And uh, just coming out of there to go home, I'd stood on the corner, the street corner for a little while. It wouldn't have been for long because we had to be in for school you know i mean a lot of the other kids in the area could stay out a lot longer than us same sort of age as us but my mum was strict about us being in and washed and ready for school the next day and uh, i just remember seeing a lot of police uh a lot of cars unmarked cars and a police van which indicated that it was you know a convoy of police and the last car that passed us on the street corner had me dead and my brother john in the back and it's strange. It's just as if everything else around me went blur, but I zoomed in on the back window of this car, and I just couldn't work out what was what was happening there. So I just ran up the road after being told that the cars had actually stopped outside our house, and that's it. That's when uh, they all started. Well, I, I've actually said in the past that so that's when uh, my childhood ceased to exist, right there on that doorstep. Because as soon as the door opened, I was asked who I was. And I said, well, look, I live here. And they said, right, we got another one. And I was pulled into the house, and uh, that was it. No more child. It's a good title for a book. No more child.
0: Oh, yeah, this is to me, have you anybody to mind to look after your children? Well, Vince was 16 John was 15 and Patrick was 13 and Marie was 8 then and I says what do you mean anybody to look after my children I'm not going anywhere he says well we have to take you to the police station to question you but I said I can't answer any more questions what you've already asked me here what more can I tell you I've told you I know more about that little boy next door than what I do about George Conlon They live over there, we live here. You know, are any nephews and nieces, I said. I I couldn't tell you anything about any of them. He says, look, you either tell us if you have somebody to mind them or we'll get them minded. And they said, we're taking the boys. And I says, you're taking my boys where? They says, they're innocent children. I said, they're not even Irish, you know. I said, what are you taking them? I said, it's me you want to question. They said, no, we're taking them too. And, uh, I mean, you know, my mind just started buzzing then, like, you know, innocent kids, like, you know, it's not even, don't know nothing about Ireland. And they're going to be questioned and what happened not you. So they took the boys and me to the local police stations.
1: Before all this happened to us, and as you know, I was 13, uh, my early thoughts were getting away from school. I mean, I, at that point in my life, like any kid, I suppose, I didn't like school. You know, I liked the friends that I had there and some parts of the schooling, but the day running of it, I didn't care too much for. I just wanted to leave as quickly as possible and join the army. That was my ambition, was to be a soldier. That was a dream. It was a romantic dream at that age. I know more. I know the serious side of it now. But still, it was a dream that I I had and wanted to fulfil. And uh, I just had things to look forward to, like going to the club, the youth club at night, with my brothers and friends. And I didn't have a care in the world. I suppose I used to worry about... My ears used to stick out a little bit. Well, they still do, but that's the least of my worries now. And, uh, yeah, that was it. And how my hair looked. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, my mind was a million miles away from uh, from what was going to happen. You know, and Christmas was only round the corner. You know, we used to hunt the house looking for the toys. You know, we still. Be- I mean, I still believe that Father Christmas brought them, but I knew my mum also got some as well to help him. You know, and you search the house looking, and you never find them. We know now that she used to leave them next door, or you know, really hide and well. And so yeah, I had no cares, no cares in the world really.
0: We got into the Guildford Police Station, and um, I asked for a drink of water. And the young, one of the young policemen was going to get it for me. And now I know it was um, Paul and Robison, the policemen that interrogated me. Uh, he says she'll get nothing, and he says in here, and they took us into the room. They said that jerk Conan had made a statement. I showed him how to make bombs and I said no, that's lies I said and I told him the last time the first in 12 years that I had seen Gerard Conklin in my house in 93 or 73 that Christmas told him what the reason and he'd come over to work and all that and he was with his other uncle and they had a row and my husband let him stay with us till he went home for the Christmas. And I says I haven't seen calling him since then. I says I, I couldn't even put a fuse in the plug, not alone show people have bombs. And I says I've been praying that these bombers be caught. I says and you're accusing me, and they mocked mocked me at that. Oh yeah, you yeah we're praying you know and and I says look sir I kept calling them sir because. At home, when we were brought up, we used to say, good morning, sir, to the policeman and that. And my grandmother always used the word, sir, you know. And that would just come out of me, like. And then they kept saying, oh, listen, dear, they have her well trained, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. And um, they kept on about this, Gerard Collin making this statement, and I said no. So they brought in Paul Hill. Well, I never knew Paul Hill. I wouldn't have known Paul Hill. Only that October of seventy-three, of seventy-four, I went to an Irish dance with friends, and that, and Paul Hill was there, and Gerard Conlon and that were there. And he spoke to me and said that I asked me that I know his mother, and I went to school with his mother and his our sisters. They all lived around Leeson Street. And that was the only words I had with Paul Hill. And, I I mean, I'd never seen him before. I didn't even know he existed. Or Carl Richardson, or Paddy Armstrong. I'd never met them people before. And um, (coughs) they brought Paul Hill in. Well, he didn't walk in. They dragged him in. He couldn't stand up Paul Hill. His eyes were like two balls sitting out in his cheeks. And I recognised him by the sports jacket he had on at the dance. And I said, that's that wee fella, Hill. And how do you know him? Again, I explained to him about the dance and I recognised him by the sports jacket. I took him out and the next thing, Jerry Connolly was brought in. Paul Hill, or him, have yet, they apologise to me. I, I mean, their apology won't take the suffering away that we've gone through, but they've yet to explain why they picked me when they had so many aunts and their own mothers and sisters. Why did they pick me, an outsider, where Paul Hill's concerned? I'd only met him the once so why you know and I haven't had that answer yet and nobody has ever questioned on that nobody and you know I mean people say to me would you face them and I said yes I would face them I personally would face them too and say to them why did you pick me You know, I think to the day I die, you know, I want them to answer that question. I want them to answer that question. Why did they pick me? I just want that question answered. I want that answer before I go. And I want them to answer it to me. I mean, if I ever met them on the street, I wouldn't care where I'd be or who I'd be with or where, who they'd be with. I think I'd have to stop and ask them to ask answer me that question. Mm. Just answer it to me, you know. I mean, I wouldn't be abusive to them. People said I'd kill them, if you know. And I says, no, I wouldn't. I would just, you know, I I'm not a violent person, you know. I would just say to them, look, just please answer me. Why did you give my name? You know, mm. why? And to think, you know, that. They've come out top of it all, you know, and we're still struggling. And I've, and my kids and I have lost so much, you know. I mean, I shouldn't be paying a mortgage today in this place. I had a home that I was going to buy. I was buying it. I keep praying. I pray for them, actually. I pray for them, too, in my prayers. And, you know, people look at me and they say are you Are you crazy? But, no, I pray to God that them too will have the courage and the guts to come to me and explain why they done this. I know people say they didn't do this, but they started it. If they hadn't given my name, the police had no reason to come to my house. No reason whatsoever to come to my house.
1: Interrogation weren't too clever. It was, uh, it got physical, you know, quite a lot of it. I mean, I got physically abused on the way down, mentally, and uh, that started to frighten me a bit because he, he said to me what he was going to do to me if I didn't tell him the truth. And I thought to myself, well, I, I have told you the truth, so I'm in a lot of trouble because I can't tell you no more. And he kept to his word. I mean, he just, I'll put it like this, he just beat the crap out of me because I wasn't... Uh, prepared to sign any statements.
0: After they took Jared Conlon out of the room, they took me into another room and um, set me down at a table. Again, questions. And they showed me that they had my purse that was made in long cash. And um, he hit me across the head with the purse. And, I mean, there was money in it, you know, coins and things. And then the next thing, <coughs> they pulled my head back, my hair back. And he says, are you going to tell us about these bombings? And I said, sir, I told you I don't know nothing about the bombings. But Gerard Conlon said you showed them how to make bombs. And you went to Guildford to plant the bombs with them. And I said, sir, I've never been to Guildford. And they wrote on the board and they said, can you read that? And again, my eyes were very, but they had IRA and it was big, you know, and I had to kind of, you know, go up close, like, to see. And I says, well, it's IRA. And they said, yeah, you know that, don't you, you be? And I says, but you've written it on the board, sir. And the next thing I was dragged out of the chair and I had a heavy period then, so I had. And um, they put me against the wall. The stand spread eagle, with my hands spread eagle, my legs spread out and my hands. And, I mean, I could feel, you know, and I could start beginning to smile because I hadn't had a change now, you know. Because, I mean, when you're, like, heavy like that, you change so many times in the day. And I remember just... Getting weaker and weaker, and I kept falling. And I felt them kicking me here in the hips, you know, in the hip part. Get up, B and dragging me up and leaning me against the wall again. And every time I kept falling. And then I was dragged over to the chair, again. And I felt this sharp thing in the side of my head. And he said, "We're going to shoot you." And I said, you shoot me, sir, I can face my God. I says, because I haven't done nothing wrong. I'm not involved in these things you're accusing me of. I said, you know, and it um, started just hitting me in the back of the head and and that. And I was really weak then, you know.
1: My mother or father hadn't said to me, right, like you know, we're going to court in so many months' time, and if we get found guilty, guilt was never the word. Guilty was never brought into the conversation. They may have, among themselves, my mum and dad might have had that conversation, but with me, they never said, you know, we might we're going to go to court, and if we get found guilty, you're going you might go to prison. That was never mentioned, you know. So it was the furthest thing from my mind. All of a sudden that we were going to the Old Bailey, and uh, as far as I was concerned, it was the great greatest sick note in the world for a kid at school. You know, I told the teacher and the headmaster, <clears throat> which he was aware of, that I wouldn't be in for so many weeks. Was I'm going to court, and that was okay. You know, and uh, I was just glad to get away from school. Mm-hmm. All I remember hearing is a uh, guilty, 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 guilty. And after the after the first or second guilty, I heard I seen my mum screaming and throwing herself back, and my mum's gone into a. A bit of a fit, I suppose, you know. She can't believe it, I mean... And I'm stunned by this, I, I don't know what's, you know, it's all happening so fast now, I don't know what's going on. And then, uh, that's it, everyone starts shuffling towards the stairs to go back down to the cells, and I'm going with them. So that was it, I was uh, brought back downstairs, stuck in a cell with me brother, Vince, and I said to him, and I said it in a way as if I'd won a million pounds or something, I've been found guilty, you know, just I was sort of relieved, you know, that I was... I'm with him, you know. And he said, "Yeah," and then it hit me like, you know. And I said to him, well, "What, what happens now?" And he says, "Well, we go to prison." And I thought, Jesus. Come on. And I said, well, "What, what do I, what do we do? What happens when we?" And Vince says, "I don't know," because he'd never been to prison. I said, "Well, what do I tell him?" You know, they're going to ask me who I am and what have I done, and I haven't done nothing wrong. What do I tell him? And he tried to explain to me uh, the charge. He said, uh, "Just tell him that you were found guilty of uh, unlawfully handling nitro glycerin." But before that, my dad came in to see us. My mum never came in because my mum was out cold. I mean, I think someone would give her a an injection or something or a couple of tablets to calm her down and knock the spark out. cause she woke up in Durham, I think, my mum. You know, uh, but my dad came in and uh, he, he actually put his finger under my chin and lifted my head up and said, "You keep your head up. Never look down. You always keep." And he gave me his uh, tobacco pouch because I was smoking then. I mean, you know I mean. Oh. That was the only crime I'd done. It was having a cigarette. So he gave me, me the his tobacco pouch and his watch, which he got when he was about 17 years of age when he was in the army, and he always said he'd give this to me one day when I was bigger. But I didn't. I know, I'm sure he didn't think it was it'd be under these circumstances, You like know, in, in a cell, in the old Bailey, and uh, I've still got it to this day. I wouldn't even I wouldn't swap the watch obviously for the for this week's lottery numbers. I mean, it's worth a lot more than that to me. You know, I mean, uh, just just that moment in time then when he actually gave it to me is uh, something. But uh, I often think when I look at the watch, how many times he was in the pub when he was a young man thinking, oh, I've got time for one more. <laughs> and my mum would kill him when he got home. That's, you know, so uh, I've got a... But I'd always get that watch anyway. But what a, what a time to give it to someone. Here I was losing time, having time taken away from me, and all of a sudden my father was giving me something that was uh, a, a figure of time, you know, a watch. So it was strange, one minute you're losing time, then I'm getting it. But they actually took that watch off me when I got to the to the prison that I went to. And they said I didn't need to know the time, because I wasn't going anywhere. Well, not for four years anyway. because That's the, the sentence I got, I got four years. And, uh, yeah, so me and the watch done a bit of time. <laughs> strange.
0: When we got to Durham um, well I was carried in you know I was just collapsing but I was realising I am in prison and that and I just couldn't stop crying and that you know I just couldn't I mean I just wanted my children you know and um as the weeks went on, um, I was on the wings scrubbing the lanterns that 's what you do first when you go there, scrubbing lanterns and now and the tears were going into the bucket like were me crying and i'd had nobody had come up could come up to visit me yet. This was nearly um about four days after I went to Durham, and my sister and sister Sarah Clark um came up on a visit, but they wouldn 't let Sister Sarah Clark in. And they let Anne Marie and Mary in, and she had brought my glasses, like, and you now. And when Anne Marie came in, like, I mean, of course, you're on straight to go to me, and the two officers that were on put their hand out, it, I couldn't hold her. And that was heartbreaking. I mean, my child, that I never let go, you know. I seen Anne Marie then. and On the way, she kept saying, Mummy, can I come and see your bedroom? You know, can I stay with you? When are you coming home? You know, as a child at nine years of age would ask. And I says, no, not yet, love, maybe another time, you know. And um, after the visit, I mean, it was just heartbreaking, you know, to to let her go. And on the way out, we could hear her screams all over the courtyard. I want my mum, I want my mum. And that will always linger. You know, nobody can ever take that away from me, you know. I mean, I hear that some days here when I'm in the house. I hear her cries as a child. And, I mean, everybody has suffered in these cases. But I don't think any mother has had to put up what I had to put up with, you know. A young girl screaming and that. And not being able to hold your child and that, you know. And it'll always be there to linger with me to the day I die. That incident of Anne Marie.
1: I think we only saw my mum twice a year. We used to go from our prison by escort all the way up to Durham, which is, like, from one end of the country to the other. It's, uh, I'd never even heard of Durham. I didn't even know where Durham was. You know, it could have been anywhere, you know, and uh, just so happens it was not that far away from Scotland. The nearest I've been to Scotland, uh, bloody cold up there, I'll tell you. And I got there, and, and we went in our own prison uniform, and my mum was hoping that we'd be wearing our own clothes, but they said no, for security reasons. You know, fair enough. But when we got to Durham, they actually took our prison clothes off us, and put them into their prison clothes. But they're all the same, you know? No matter what prison... Well, in them days, I don't know about now, but in them days, wherever prison you went to, it was the same uniform. But, obviously, uh, the clothes they gave me were much too big. So when I actually walked in to visit my mum on the first day, I was actually holding my trousers up by the waist. they wouldn't actually let me uh, smoke in prison, they wouldn't serve me cigarettes and the reason why they said was I was too young. <laughs> so why put me there if I was, why couldn't they have waited until I was only allowed to smoke and then lock me up in prison? But they said I was uh, far too young to smoke. So, uh, I, But I got cigarettes anyway, I mean the, the lads, the other boys used to get them for me and I'd give them something in return.
0: I mean, as I said, all marriages have their ups and downs. Paddy and I were no different. I mean, we were together from when I was 14, he was 17. Not living or anything, but we were married. I was almost 22 when I married Paddy. And we were never separated, you know? I mean, as I said, like all marriages and relationships, you have your arguments. But at the end of the day, we were there together. And... I just longed for his arms around me at night, you know, just to hold me and say, it's going to be all right, love. You know, everything's going to be all right. I I missed him, you know, not being there, just to hold me in his arms and say, it's going to be all right. And, um, you know, and the feeling was that 14 years, I'm 40, um, I'll be over 50 by the time I get out. And, I mean, we wouldn't be the same people we were. You know, we'd be older and that. Wouldn't have the same sting in our marriage, you know?
1: If I had to put my finger on one particular thing, with all of this, what I resent the most, I mean, there's just so many, but, I mean, if I was put on the spot and I'm going to be selfish now, it would be my childhood was taken away from me. You know, I mean, I love my mum and dad to death, but I still feel there's a, a gap there. And that gap is what happened to us, and it hasn't been filled. And I don't... I believe nothing will fill, fill it. Nothing I know, anyway. I hope that something will one day, but uh, I just feel so distant from everything and everyone. But again, like I said, if I was just being selfish and thinking of myself, it's me, my childhood. You know, that, as I said, was uh, taken away from me. You know, I never had a chance to put away my toys and grow up, you know, I never had a chance to uh, take off my short trousers and put on long ones. I was forced into long trousers. On the, on the day I was released from prison, uh, you get your gear together, your prison property, you know, and they check it. And as I said, uh, I, I don't know why they did check it because anyone in their right mind wants to nick anything that belongs to the prison. It's got to be crazy. It shouldn't be released, you know. So they check mine and obviously it's all there. And they keep you waiting and you have a bit of breakfast, which I declined to have because. I thought, I don't want no more of this crap. You know, I'll save myself for a bit of decent stuff. And, uh, yeah, I was waiting for this day. I mean, every man waits for that day, regardless if you're guilty or innocent, you know. You're being released. You know, each individual is being released into their own individual world. You know, i paint the picture for you. It's the typical big brown prison gates, very heavy and... It wasn't just me being released that day, there was other prisoners being released. And uh, I was the last to walk out. My uncle, QE, my dad's brother, was waiting for me, and another friend. And there was a police car across the road. First thing I saw was a police car with two policemen in it. And I'm sure that was to make sure I got out of uh, the area safely or without leaving... (laughs) Maybe they thought I was going to plant a bomb as soon as I got outside the gate, I don't know, but that was there, and... uh, It started the rain on the way home when we were driving home. I loved the rain, always have done, even to this day. And it rained for me that day and uh, I let the window down. I was in the back of the car, let the window down and I let the the fresh air come in and it was bringing the rain in and it was hitting me on the face and I thought, this is great, really is good.
0: I knew I had a date to come out, so that was something, you know, I knew they couldn't keep me after that date. And but as I said, every day, every minute of every day, my time during my sentence, the hope was there when I'd hear me name being called to the officer, or whatever, or an officer calling Anne McGuire, I'd think, oh God, it's nigh. I'm going home, you know they're going to say, on, oh, they've made a mistake, you're going home. And I lived, I think that's what brought me through my sentence, living in that hope. And again, knowing how innocent we all were, you know? And, um, you know, I just couldn't believe when those gates were opened, that I was actually free. And inside, I said right Anne this is your day for you to show the world this is Anne Maguire now hear and see me and judge me for yourselves and that was what was there all through my prison sentence my day would come and my day had come